is the immigable God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We'll pray. Lord Jesus, um, this passage of scripture is, is just so important, God, as it exalts you to your rightful place. And I pray that as we look at it together, that you would be exalted in our hearts, that we would um, truly, Lord, acknowledge you for all that you are and yield to you, Lord, in faith, in love, in obedience. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, some of you have been asking, um, have I been kicking people lately? Um, no. Um, I've thought about it since it's been broken. Um, kind of find out who your friends are when you're a cripple. Um, yeah, I just hopped off the porch. Um, I was, Patsy was gone, and she asked me to water her plants, so it's her fault. Um, <laughs> So I jumped off the porch to turn on the water, and the rest is history. So I cracked my ankle. So I'll be in a boot for a few weeks. And then, crazy thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to this whole thing and learning how to sleep with a broken ankle, and, and I have this dream. This is a true story. And in my dream, I have a cat that is biting my foot on my bad ankle. I have never had that dream in my life. And this cat is just clawing and chomping down on my foot. So I shook my foot. So I may be a few more weeks beyond what the doctor said. Before. I'm telling you, it hurts to shake a broken ankle. See, there's no good reason for cats. You, uh... Well, we're in Colossians 1. I told you um, a couple of weeks ago when we started this letter that this is one of the two epistles that Paul wrote to churches that he had never visited prior to writing the epistle. And the other of the two is Romans. And Romans, we know, is just the pinnacle, really, of Paul's writings. And now here, Colossians, and, and really, in, especially in Colossians, but it would be true in Romans as well, um, Paul seemed to be very, very aware that one of the biggest ways that the enemy attacks us as Christians is to want us to think that there's something more that we need other than Jesus Christ, that he is not sufficient. And so 
he offers all kinds of other things to us. I think even back to the Garden of Eden where the, the devil was saying to Eve, there's something more that you should have and God's withholding that from you. And so she was, he was trying to cause her to feel inadequate and insufficient and if there was just something that's more that she could have, then that would change everything. But there was nothing that she was missing. And yet he still instilled that lie and that doubt into her heart. And so it's a very, very powerful lie, and it's one that Satan's used from the very beginning, and he still uses today. Because we all have that, that sense of inadequacy and deficiency. We struggle with doubt and despair and discouragement, and we wonder, is there something I'm missing out on? Well, before Paul can really talk about the sufficiency of Christ, he has to talk about the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is supreme. And because he is supreme, he is sufficient. He would not be sufficient if he was anything less than what he is. He is the preeminent, supreme, living God. And so this portion of Scripture is really all about the supremacy of Christ. It was introduced by Paul's prayer for the Colossians in the previous few verses. And the two basic things, there are several points of that prayer, but the two basic things that stand out to me were in verse 10, where he says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then in verse 12, giving, joyously giving thanks to the Father. And so those are two things that ought to be characterizing all of our lives. We are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, and we are joyously giving thanks to the Lord. And you think, most Christians, I mean, if we're honest about our own life experience, we would say we are falling short on both of those scores. We're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, and we are not joyously giving thanks to Him. We struggle with those two things. And so Paul, having said, this is what I'm praying would characterize your life, the next thing he does is move us into the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So there's a connection here. I am not going to walk worthy of him. I am not going to be joyously giving thanks to him if I don't first of all see him in the fullness of who he is. And so that's what this passage is about. And and he says, the, one of the reasons that we are to be joyful in our thanksgiving to the Lord is because of what the Father has done for us. And so this one paragraph here begins with what the Father has done for us, and then it ends in verses 19 and 20 with what the Father has done in Christ, for Christ, and on in our behalf. And in between, all the verses in between are about Jesus and all that he is, his supremacy. So what the Father has done, the book ends, and in between all that Jesus is. So what has he done? In verse 12, it leads in, is the introduction for verse 13, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We may feel disqualified to even wear the name Christian. But Paul is saying God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has qualified us. Not on the basis of anything we've done, God has qualified us. Reminds me back over in Romans 4 where Paul was saying God 
reckoned Abraham righteous. It wasn't Abraham reckoning himself righteous. God reckoned him righteous. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has done this. How did he do that? He says in verse 13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. These are accomplished things that God has done on our behalf. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We don't belong to Satan anymore. We live in this world, obviously, and Satan is the God of this world still, Scripture says. And you know how it must infuriate Satan that we, without leaving this earth, have been transferred from his kingdom to Christ's kingdom. It must I can't hardly think of anything that makes him more angry than in the midst of his kingdom there are these lights living. Living lights of people who have been transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and he hates it. I had a letter that, um, that I started reading by email on my phone, and I, just, I had to stop reading because it was so long, and I'm just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And it came from a, a young couple, um, and the husband had been a student at his hill oh, a number of years ago now. And, and he and his wife and his small children are ministering as missionaries um, in the northern, northern reaches of Canada um, to the Indian people. They call them First Nations. And this letter was just chronicling incredible spiritual warfare that they had been going through, and it was written just simply to ask for prayer. And I tell you, it, it, it was incredible. These people are truly under attack. And it has to be because they are truly in the kingdom of darkness. And they are lights in that kingdom. And they're talking about the physical things that have been happening to them with stomach ailments and different things. They're talking about all the things that have broken down at the same day. It says, who on the same day has, and they list half a dozen different things that have broken down, you know, vehicles, the well, the electric, you know, electrical systems and stuff, and just going on, you know, and then, I mean, just one thing after another. And, and, and they know that there's one person in particular in the community that has been, been, been praying for their, for their destruction, um, putting spells on them, um, leaving different satanic things at their house. And there's just a young couple that is just truly, truly in a place of darkness and being attacked constantly. And we take for granted sometimes that even though we aren't going through that kind of clear, overt spiritual oppression and attack, we are still living in Satan's kingdom. We are not of it, but we are in this kingdom world. We've been transferred from his kingdom to Christ's kingdom. We are not part of his kingdom any longer, but we're still living with it all around us. And we can joyously give thanks to the Father because we're not part of his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, but we are part of the kingdom of his beloved son. God has done this. We are different because of what God has done. We are citizens of another realm, of another king. And now the enemy wants to do everything he can 
to cause us to get our eyes off of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. Because Satan wants to be the supreme one. And he wants us not to elevate Christ to his rightful position. He wants to do everything he can to diminish Jesus. No wonder Paul has to write these things about Jesus. And one of the ways that he diminishes Christ is to cause us to think that there's something that we need other than what we were, be- what we were given when we received Christ, which is himself. And if we fall to that temptation of thinking there's something more than Jesus, then we have bought the sa- Satan's lie that Christ is not supreme. We hear it all the time. We deal with it personally. I hear it all the time. I, and it, 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 it breaks my heart. When the students arrive at his hill in September, I tell them that first night, there is nothing more that you need than what you got the, the day that you received Jesus Christ. We are not going to try to add to him. We're not going to tell you there's something more that you need. We have one ambition, and that is to lead you to Jesus Christ, his supremacy, and his sufficiency. Because so many ministries, I heard of a conference recently, and at least one of my friends attended it. It was in Florida. Back in February, 60,000 people went to this conference. And the entire focus of it was there's something more that you need. And they wouldn't come out necessarily and say it in those words. But that's, the, that's what's being presented. You're missing out on something. And, so, and that something is typically an experience that, that you should have. And in the course of that 60,000-person conference, they were all standing together, many of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them outside because they couldn't all be inside from what I heard. And so the the leader says, I want everybody to touch somebody, put your arms around somebody, and I want all of you at the same time cry out, Jesus! And they all did. And every single one of those 60,000 people apparently felt an electrical current go through them. They felt this shock go through them. All of them. And now, that's the bait. There must be something more to this Christian life than what I've been experiencing. And you start going down that road and all of it is saying behind it, Jesus is not enough. What you received when you received Christ was not enough. There's something more that you need than him. It is a lie. So in verse 14, he begins about um, who what we have in Christ and what he, who he is and what he has accomplished, in whom we have redemption. So Jesus is our redeemer. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been purchased out of that kingdom of darkness and delivered, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been redeemed. And we've been redeemed because we have the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness of sins are two different things, but Paul here is making them almost equal with each other. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that? Our sins have been forgiven, and we have been redeemed. We have been transferred into his kingdom. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And our sins are forgiven. All of them. Verse 15, this is where he really begins to exalt Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. 
When God made Adam and Eve, he made man, he said, let us make them in our own image. We are made in the image. Jesus is the image. There seems to be a major distinction there. I don't know if we have a good parallel to, to what that distinction is, but, but one thing I, I've read is that it's because the word that's going to come into play here is, is in, when he speaks of firstborn twice in this paragraph, the Greek word there is prototokos, which is the word we get prototype from. And if you think about our currency, especially our hard currency, the coins, but even the paper currency, they're in the U.S. Treasury, in the, they're in the mint where the money is minted. All, everything that we have is an image of an original. And that original is what Jesus is. We are in the image of him, whereas Jesus is the original. He is the image of God. He is when the invisible God, when we look at Jesus, we see God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen my Father. He is the one who has fleshed out, John 1 says, all that the Father is. Then he came and took on flesh that we might see the Father and behold the Father. He, has, he is the exegesis of the Father. He is the actual, literal image of the invisible God. You have to be God to be the actual, literal image of the invisible God. Secondly, he is the firstborn of all creation. So that's that word prototokos. He is the prototype. Everything is from him, based on him. It means that he is preeminent over all creation. Firstborn in the Old Testament often had nothing to do with when a person was born. So we had, have um, Joseph, who was declared the firstborn in his family, though he was born number 11. Um, um, J, I'm sorry, the two sons of, Ab- um, of Jacob, Esau, Jacob. What am I going wrong here? <laughs> Jacob was declared the firstborn over Esau, and he was not born first. And so the idea here is, is not one of, of birth order, but it is of priority and preeminence. And Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Had he meant, had Paul meant that Jesus was the first created person, he would have said first created. But he didn't say first created because Jesus is uncreated. He is himself God but he is the firstborn, the preeminent over all creation. So the Jehovah's Witnesses want to take this verse and say it just means that he was the first one made in creation. If that were the case, then Paul should have said first created, but he didn't. Firstborn, which means preeminent over all creation. For by him, verse 16, all things were created. He is the creator. He is preeminent over creation because he is himself the creator, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is the creator and he is the object of creation. He is creator God. In verse 17, he is the sustainer. He is before all things, and in him 
All things hold together. He is before all things, again, speaks of his preeminence. He has the first place. He is the one who gets to go first in line because of his position. And he is the one who holds everything together. We know that this earth is rotating at a thousand miles an hour. It's pretty amazing. And it revolves around the sun, I think, at 67,000 miles an hour. That's pretty amazing. We are flying through space. A thousand miles an hour, we're turning like this. 67,000 miles an hour, we're flying around the sun. Why don't we fly off? Why don't, why, how is he, and, and that's, that's just on the big scale. And then on the atomic level, there's no explanation. Physicists have no explanation for how things are held together. How are those protons and neutrons, those atoms, those molecules, what's holding them together? You know what I, I recently read is the official, at least one of the official physicist explanations for what holds it all together. Atomic glue. You've got to be kidding. In other words, they don't know why it all works. There is, because it's just space. Between all these atoms and molecules and protons and neutrons, it's just space. And there is no evidence of what is holding it together and making it work. Well, we know. Jesus is holding it all together. It ought to just be flying apart. And when you think also of the second law of thermodynamics that physicists tell us about, where everything is in a state of decay, of disintegration, all the more it's miraculous that, we, that, we, that it's held together when it ought to be decaying and disintegrating in, in ways that it, it's, there would just be chaos instead of cosmos. But we don't have chaos. It works, and it works beautifully. And the only explanation is there is the creator who made it, who is sustaining it. He's sustaining this world. Not just the planet that we live on, but the actual world system. As as chaotic as it appears, as evil as it can be, Jesus is in control. And he is sustaining this fallen world. And whether we acknowledge it or not, he is sustaining you and me. I think it's valid to ask him, Lord, strengthen me. Lord, sustain me. But it ought to be done in recognition that he is the sustainer. And he is sustaining me. And he always has sustained me. And he will continue to do so. Because that is his role. He is the sustainer. He holds all things together. He is also the head of the body, the church. Head speaks of authority. A lot of the commentaries I looked at wanted to say that this also speaks of him being the source of the church. And he is the source. But the problem with introducing the idea of source here is that it also says that that the Father is the head of Jesus. Well, that can't mean source. So just as Christ is the head of the church, the Father is the head of Jesus. So the idea can't be source, because Jesus does not have a source. 
He is eternal. He is pre-existent. He, he does not have a beginning. So this really has more of the idea of authority. Christ is in charge of his church. And once again, we'd look around and go, sure doesn't look like it. So many problems in the church, and there are multitudes of problems. But Jesus Christ is the head of his church. I don't know if you heard that recently the United Methodist um, had a large international conference, and they were voting on whether or not to ordain homosexuals um, to the ministry. And the vote lost. Homosexuals will not be ordained. Well, the reason it lost is because of all the African clergy who came to the United States for that conference, I believe it was the United States, and they voted it down. And there were like 600 against and 400 plus four. So it was fairly close, but it once again got shot down. Well, praise God for the Africans, right? And you think, how ironic. You know, where the Western world has always looked as Africa as just this needy continent and these ignorant people, and yet God is using the weak things, right? God is using the foolish things, as the world would view, to hold that denomination in check. There's probably going to be a split in the Methodist church because those in the United States don't like what happened. And they know that as long as Africa's out there and they're conservative, that they're not going to get their way on the homosexual agenda that they want. But God is still head of his church. Jesus Christ is in control. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He himself is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Again, he is preeminent is the idea of firstborn. He is preeminent. He has power over. He has, he has position over death. Death is not his master. He is the master of death. He is in control. It doesn't mean that he was the first one in chronologically to rise from the dead. There were others who rose from the dead. But he was the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again, to enter to, to, to accept a glorified body because he rose physically from the dead. Only Jesus Christ. He was the first one to have done that. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. I hope in that as, as, we, as I'm reading through these things slowly, that you're thinking, and, and the Spirit of God is applying these things to our life as, I'm, as he's been doing to me. And I've just been thinking of all the sermons that I could ever give you. This has got to be the most important one on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and all that he is. He is worthy of all. Because of who he is, his exalted position does he have first place in all of my life, in all of our lives, in every detail of our life? Does Jesus have first place? I um, did a search on names and titles of Jesus, and all these different um, things come up on the web. 
One lists 50 names and titles. Another one listed 150. Another one listed 200. The Bible has a lot to say about who Jesus is. There's no passage of Scripture other than that has more to say in one place about Jesus than this passage here, Colossians 1, 13 to 20. This is the premier chapter in all of Scripture for Jesus being exalted. But there are many, many references to who Christ is. This is just a few of the 50 in this site. Almighty One, Alpha and Omega, Advocate, Author and Perfector of our faith, Bread of Life, Beloved Son of God, Bridegroom, Chief Cornerstone, Deliverer, Faithful and True, Good Shepherd, Great High Priest, Head of the Church, Holy Servant, I Am, Emmanuel, indescribable gift, judge, king of kings, lamb of God, light of the world, lion of the tribe of Judah, Lord of all, mediator, Messiah, mighty one, one who sets free our hope, peace, redeemer, risen Lord, rock, sacrifice for our sins, savior, son of man, son of the most high, supreme creator over all, resurrection and the life, the door, the way, the word, the true vine, the truth, the victorious one, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You get the idea? Christ is supreme. Well, how can he be supreme without being sufficient? See, if he's not sufficient, it's because he's not supreme. And if he is supreme, then he is sufficient for every aspect of life. Whatever we're going through, and we go through a lot, Jesus is sufficient for all that we would ever encounter in life. The despair, the discouragement, the trials, the brokenness, all the different things that make up the life in this fallen world. If there is an answer other than Jesus, God sure hasn't told us about it. God says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who is supreme and sufficient. So verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Are you empty? Your fullness is only in him because all the fullness dwells in him. We're always going to have that sense of inadequacy. I took us two weeks ago to Revelation where where John's looking around heaven and crying because there is no one found worthy who can open the book with with its seals. Who can open it? Even in heaven, no one is worthy. No one is adequate other than Jesus Christ himself. It's not fun going through life and having to face our own inadequacy and being reminded of it over and over again. But every time that happens, it's an opportunity to remember the adequacy, the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It isn't about us. The fullness is in Christ, not in us. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, 
Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God, the Father, through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, has reconciled everything to himself. Again, we look around and go, God, that hasn't happened yet. And we know there's a not yet to our faith, but in actuality, in terms of of God's economy and looking at this world, he says it is done. All things have been reconciled to him. God is at peace with this fallen creation because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ has satisfied God. Remember, reconciliation in Scripture is always unilateral. It's one one directional. It's not bilateral. It's always God who is um, who who has that we are reconciled to God. It's not God who is reconciled to us. God is the one who is satisfied, who is propitiated, and the blood of Jesus Christ has satisfied God, and all things have been reconciled to Him. And all means all. The focus of the satanic attack is to diminish Jesus Christ. Behind everything the devil is doing, it is to lower our estimation of Jesus Christ so that we won't trust him. So that, as we don't trust him, Christ is robbed of his glory. And as Christ is robbed of his glory, we truly suffer defeat, even depression, moral failure, hopelessness, joylessness, despair. And it all began with Jesus being diminished from his rightful place. As Christ is diminished, Christ is robbed of his glory, we fail to trust him, and we in turn suffer for it. Just as we saw in the Garden of Eden. God is diminished, they fail to trust him, and we suffer ever since because of the choice of those two people. He is sustaining us. He is supreme. These are not truths of maybe this is going to happen. These are statements of what is true. And so I just want to leave you with one final thought. Short sermon because it's hard to stand on one leg. All sin, it seems to me, is a manifestation of one of two things. Either just open rebellion against God. We don't care. Because Scripture tells us we don't have to sin. Because Christ has defeated Satan, he has overcome the world, and he has forgiven us of all of our sin, and he has broken the bondage of sin. So why then do we sin? Well, because we want to. That's one reason. I just want what I want. And it can be a simple thing as just choosing not to forgive somebody. I don't want to forgive. I don't think they deserve to be forgiven. I think they should suffer a little bit longer. It's sin. And it's willful rebellion. 
So that's the one reason we sin. It's just willfulness, willful rebellion. And another reason we sin is because of just unbelief. We really just don't think, don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to help us, that he's enough for us. There must be something more. So when you think about those two things, just willful rebellion and unbelief, both of which are sin, it seems to me that the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ is what both of them are about. If I really believed in all of my heart that Jesus is supreme, and one day I'm going to have to stand before him, that's a pretty good motivation to stop my willful disobedience, my willful rebellion. Who am I rebelling against? The God of God, the one who has redeemed me, who has forgiven me, the one who, who has blessed me with every blessing in the heavenly places, the one who has given his very life for me, but the one who is the creator God, the one who is the sustainer of this universe. And I think I can get away with open rebellion against him. It's because I am exalting myself and I am lowering Christ. It is an attack on the supremacy of Jesus Christ every time you and I willfully sin against him. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is being attacked. And when I just doubt him and think that there's nothing he's going to do for me, that he answers prayer for other people, but he's, there's no hope for him with me, then I am doubting the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's not always a clear separation, is it? Sometimes that willful rebellion and that, and that just simple doubt and unbelief, they, they're, they're not clear and, and separated from each other. Sometimes they go together. But it occurs to me that the one is an attack on the supremacy of Jesus and the other one is doubting the sufficiency of Jesus. Nothing is more important than believing Jesus is who he is. And if he was able to save us from our sins, he is more than able, more than sufficient for this life that you and I are living. God never expected us to live this life. Christ lives this life. All the fullness dwells in him, not in you and me. He is the author and the perfecter of faith. He is the originator he is the source, he is the means, and he is the goal of all things. As Romans eleven thirty six says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'll close us in prayer. Lord, I know that on the day that you either call us home or you come in the air for us. Either way, we will be in your presence and we will realize how little we thought of you. Not in the amount of thought, but just how low our thoughts of you were. We can't begin to 
exalt you as you are worthy of. Even for that, we are lacking God in the ability. We are inadequate to exalt you, to elevate you as you deserve. And I pray, Father, that we would fall at your feet and that we, in this reminder, God, of all that you are, we would just be quiet and just bow in awe in our hearts at the thought, Lord, of having the privilege of being in your presence because you have qualified us to do so. Because you've transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. Because you have forgiven our sins. We are truly unworthy. And God, we are all under attack. And so many times that attack is not in the overt ways that we would expect from the evil one. But it is always to diminish Jesus and to make us think that he is not enough. There's something more that we may need to get us to just simply not trust him and to take our eyes off of him. I pray, God, for your illuminating work in each of our hearts to what Satan is doing in each of us individually to diminish Jesus and to not trust fully in him. Bring these things to the light, God, that we would confess them, turn from them, and once again with all of our being, praise you for being the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the sustainer as well as the creator of this world and of our very lives. We move and breathe and have our being in him and because of him. He is truly our circumstance, our environment. He is our hope, our confidence. Jesus is life. And we thank you, God, for all that you've given us in him and that we are at peace with you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.